Well, good morning. Good to see everyone who's here. We've been sitting for a little bit. Why don't we just stand up and say hello to a neighbor around you? Good to see all the visitors here. Welcome. many of you know what this is? You can't see it very well. Somebody want to say what it is? Marshmallow. All right. Going to set that right there. The late 1960s and early 1970s, there was a professor at the University of Stanford called Walter I'm not sure if Michael is his last name. I'm not sure how to pronounce it exactly. Who did several studies with children. Stanford University has a school for children. So children of faculty and students go to the Stanford Elementary School. It's called the Bing School. And as far as I know, it's still running. And this professor had been studying children and their behavior for a while. And so he decided to do several studies on children between the ages of about three and a half to eight years old. And he got somebody who was familiar with the child, so somebody who knew the child well, took them into a room, sat the child down, and set a marshmallow in front of them. Or pretzels, pretzel sticks, depending on whether they had a preference for marshmallows or pretzel sticks, and told them that if they sat there until the researcher came back, until that person came back in the room, if they could avoid eating the marshmallow or the pretzel stick, they'd get another one, and they could eat both of them if they'd wait. If they didn't have the patience to wait until the researcher came back, they could eat that one marshmallow. That's all they got. And the results kind of fascinated them. The researchers waited, on average, about 15 minutes to come back into the room. Some children, they would pick up the marshmallow. They would look at it. After a while, they'd sniff it, maybe pinch a little bit off with their finger, and they'd eat it. Other children just sat there, distracted themselves, played on their fingers or played their toes like piano keys. And when the researchers came back in, they got two of those marshmallows or pretzel sticks and got to eat them. So the study happened in the late 60s and the early 70s. He did it several times. And they followed up with those young children throughout life. And I'm not sure if... 
Walter, the researcher, is still alive or not, but he was very involved in this type of research up until at least close to 2020. And the children who were able to avoid or delay eating the marshmallow or the pretzels did better in life overall. They were more uh, socially adjusted. They got better scores. They went on to have better educations. They could handle stress better. And so, while a marshmallow does not determine your future, there was a bit of a glimpse of how those children handled their environment and their self-control and how that corresponded to their outcome in life later on. And so this morning, I would like to talk about temperance and self-control and also in our Christian lives, sometimes self-control is, is denying ourselves things or, or delaying things, delayed gratification. So I suggest to us this morning that the Christian life requires self-discipline, it requires self-denial. And so I'd like to look at that this morning. So I'd like to look at some physical uh, examples of that and then make some spiritual applications, too. So I've titled the message, Don't Eat the Marshmallow, Self-Control in a Decadent Society. Now, the world around us really does not do well at self-control. It's about me, and it's about me now. It's instant gratification. We want things to load fast, we want cars to go fast, we want to get places, we don't want to wait on anything. And our world has just increased in its pace and in its, as, as morality has declined in our world, so has self-control and self-restraint. So I'd like to look at a few terms here. The Bible speaks about temperance, and temperance is the quality of moderation or of self-restraint, self-control. So temperance may be abstaining from something, or it may simply mean something in moderation. Self-control is the ability to control oneself, in particular one's emotions and desires or the expression of them in one's behavior, especially in difficult situations. We may not think that sitting in front of a marshmallow for 15 minutes is a difficult situation. That's probably because we have learned over the years to have some self-discipline. What's our equivalent as adults to a marshmallow sitting in front of us? Do we run from that or distract ourselves from that? Do we, as Christians, flee from those temptations? And sort of what got me thinking about this sermon topic was an article I read a while ago on gluttony. And 
was an Anabaptist writer writing for plainnews.org. I don't know how many people here get that or, or look at that website. Um, kind of modern-day news in, through, through a Christian worldview. And the author was talking about gluttony and what the Bible has to say about it. And I got thinking, and I realized that I have, to my recollection, I've never heard a sermon on gluttony. And I'm not sure if I've heard a sermon, I think I've heard a sermon on temperance and self-control. But I wanted to explore that a little bit for myself and share that with you all this morning. So when we think of gluttony, we usually think of food, and we usually think of maybe having a waistline that's a little bit larger than we'd like, and it certainly includes that. Obesity and being overweight are problems in our world today. Gluttony includes more than that, though, and we'll get to that in a little bit. First, a few statistics on our world today. Worldwide obesity has nearly tripled just since 1975. So we have really seen an increase in the rate of obesity just in the last 50 years. In 2016, more than 1.9 billion adults, so 18 or older, were overweight. And of these overweight people, 650 million were obese. So we basically have 40% of the world's population that is either overweight or obese. I didn't pull up the numbers, but it's billions of dollars that it costs our healthcare system because of the diseases that stem from not living a healthy lifestyle, being overweight. Things like heart problems and strokes and some types of cancers, diabetes. And we may think, well, okay, we have grown up in a, perhaps a subculture as Anabaptists where we maybe eat healthier than the general population or we don't have TV, so we're not sitting in front of the TV for several hours a day. So surely we're doing better than that. And we are doing a bit better than that. The National Institute for Health did a study in 2019 in Pennsylvania of Anabaptists, of conservative plain people, on a wide spectrum of health things, but included in that was overweight and obese uh, tendencies. And we're doing about twice as good as the general population, which means that only 15% of our people are overweight or obese, which frankly is still not a great number, I don't think. And that, sorry, that 10 to 15%, it varied by which group they did Amish and Weaverland Conference and several others. Um, it varied some among the groups of people within Pennsylvania, but the 10 to 15% did not include people who were overweight. That was only people who classified as obese. 
I think one of the reasons we don't talk about it is because it's kind of a sensitive personal topic, and I, I do want to be sensitive to that. But the Bible does have things to talk about gluttony. And being overweight or obese really is a matter of our bodies taking in more calories than it can use or can expend. It's, it's a buildup of that. And there are certainly different metabolisms or medical conditions that contribute to those things. But the root cause is still always eating more calories than our bodies need. There's more going in than going out. If you've looked at the news recently, you've probably seen the water shortage out west, especially the severe drought that's out there and how Lake Mead, where Hoover Dam is, is at its lowest point, lowest levels in history. It's way, way down. There's more going out there than going in, and the only way to replenish that would be to inverse that and have more water uh, replenish that supply, and that's the inverse of overeating. So what does the Bible say about this? The proverb writer talks about it in several places. Proverbs 23, 19 to 21 say, Hear, my son, and be wise, and direct your heart in the way. Be not among drunkards or among gluttonous eaters of meat. For the drunkard and the glutton will come to poverty, and slumber will clothe them with rags. So the proverb writer is instructing his son to direct his heart in a proper way, to not spend time or hang out with or associate with the drunkards or gluttonous eaters of meat because they will wear off on them, will affect his son. Deuteronomy speaks of what the Israelites were to do if there was a gluttonous son. Proverbs 20, or sorry, Deuteronomy 21, 18 to 21 says, If a man has a stubborn and rebellious son who will not obey the voice of his father or the voice of his mother, and though they discipline him, will not listen to them, then his father and his mother shall take hold of him and bring him out of the out to the elders of his city at the gate of the place where he lives. And they shall say to the elders of his city, This our son is stubborn and rebellious. He will not obey our voice. He is a glutton and a drunkard. Then all the men of the city shall stone him to death with stones. So you shall purge the evil from your midst, and all Israel shall hear and fear. And again, the proverb writer in Proverbs 28, this chapter is speaking of rich people and poor people, and speaking of people of integrity or people of uh, poor moral quality. And he says, the one who keeps the law is a son with understanding, but a companion of gluttons shames his father. And as I, as I read these passages, one of the things that became clear to me is that gluttony was not just talking 
about food. Rather, gluttony is, it involves that. It can be eating more food than we need. But it also involves any area in life where there's greed or habitual excess. And we, we see there, there are many more passages than the ones I read that talk about this. And through most of them, there's this, there's this idea of how these things affect us in other areas of life. They, how our lack of self-discipline and self-control in an area that spreads and trickles out into the rest of our life and affects our interactions with others. So very quickly yet on eating, gluttony is not just something that can affect people who struggle with weight. Any one of us in this room can be affected by that. I'm young, so who am I to talk, right? I'm not 50 or 60. I hear it gets harder. I have a fairly high metabolism, so Maybe I can get away with it easier than some here can get away with it. That does not excuse me from the possibility of being a glutton. Do I eat until I'm full or do I continue eating after that point because it tastes good? I firmly believe God created our taste buds for us to enjoy things. Don't hear me say that everything should be bland and we shouldn't enjoy food. But when it becomes excess, that's problematic. If not for our waistline, it's still problematic for how we approach life and how we, whether or not we're keeping our body under subjection. So in short... Gluttony is the excess of anything in life. I find it interesting that in Ezekiel, when God is talking to the Israelite people, the Israelite people, if we look at Ezekiel 16, God is talking to the Israelites and saying, you as Israelites were nothing. I created you. I nurtured you. You became a beautiful nation. And then what did you do? You turned that all inward, and you consumed that on yourselves. And God has some pretty harsh words for Israel. Let's just turn to Ezekiel 16. In our Bibles, the first part of the chapter is talking about God and how he brought them up Ezekiel 16, the beginning of it. The day you were born, in verse 4, nobody was taking care of you. No one looked upon you. Nobody had pity on you. You were cast out. And I came by and I saw you. You're filthy. Nobody cleaned you up after you were born. And I took you in and I caused you to multiply, cause you to be beautiful. 
And then Israel rejects God. And if we go to verse 48, the verses leading up to verse 48, God is comparing the country of Israel, the nation of Israel, with Samaria and with Sodom. And he's saying, Israel, you are worse than Sodom. You're worse than Samaria. And what was Sodom's sin? Sodom, as we know, was a very immoral place. But that's not what God's emphasis is when he talks about Sodom here. What does he say Sodom has done? Verse 48, As I live, saith the Lord God, Sodom thy sister hath not done, she nor her daughters, as thou hast done. Speaking of Israel, thou and thy daughters, saying, Sodom hasn't been as bad as you, Israel. Behold, this was the iniquity of thy sister Sodom. Pride, fullness of bread, and abundance of idleness was in her and in her daughters. Neither did she strengthen the hand of the poor and needy. And they were haughty and committed abomination before me. Therefore I took them away as I saw good. So 49 is saying they had plenty of food. Plenty of food to go around. And they just consumed it on themselves. There were people around them that had need. And they just sat there in luxury and in laziness, it says. So comparing that with the proverb writer, where we have, we have this idea of gluttony and drunkenness going together. We have this idea here of this abundance and this self-indulgence, this focus inward, and this laziness. And so we see that gluttony is not happening in isolation. It's this life attitude and approach that's affecting other areas of life. And the proverb writer again, another spot, Proverbs 23 says, When thou sittest to eat with a ruler, consider diligently what is before thee, and put a knife to thy throat, if thou be a man given to appetite. Be not desirous of his dainties, for they are deceitful meat. Labor not to be rich, cease from thine own wisdom. Wilt thou set thine eyes upon that which is not? For riches certainly make themselves wings. They fly away as an eagle toward heaven. Eat thou not the bread of him that hath an evil eye, neither desire thou his dainty meats. For as he thinketh in his heart, so is he. Eat and drink, saith he to thee, but his heart is not with thee. The morsel which thou hast eaten shalt thou vomit up and lose thy sweet words. So he's saying when you sit down with a ruler, if you're prone to eating a lot, check yourself. Be careful. Furthermore, if you're eating with someone who is rich, be careful that you're not wanting to be like them. Riches go away. Labor not to be rich. Again, we see a self-focused an attitude of focus inward and consuming really what God has given to us, the resources that God's entrusted to us 
Are we focused inward on those and consuming those upon ourselves or sharing those with others? So in a physical sense, our bodies are the temple of God and we should treat them as such and maintain a healthy lifestyle. But furthermore, a lack of self-control in some of these areas leads to, I think, a lack of self-control in our spiritual lives too. First Corinthians 6, Paul says, and this, this passage is speaking of, of sexual immorality, but I believe it fits here as well. Paul says in 1 Corinthians 6.19, What? Know ye not that your body is the temple of the Holy Ghost, which is in you, which ye have of God, and ye are not your own? For ye are bought with a price. Therefore glorify God in your body and in your spirit, which are God's. We recognize this morning that everything that we are, body and spirit, has been given by God. He's the one who's sustaining life. He's the one who extends his grace to us so we can be saved and live with him forever. Are we squandering that on ourselves or are we sharing our physical blessings with others? Are we stewards In Romans, familiar verse, Romans 12.1, I beseech you, therefore, brethren, by the mercies of God, that you present your bodies a living sacrifice, holy, acceptable unto God, which is your reasonable service. And then Romans 12 continues. From there, he builds on this idea of, of being holy and being subject and being a living sacrifice. And he goes and he talks about the body and the body of Christ and how it requires all these members. And so if we are not controlled, if we don't have our bodies under control, if we don't have our spirits submitted to Christ, it's going to be very difficult for us to be a positive part of the body of Christ. So let's move to some spiritual examples or implications for us today. Proverbs 25 says that he who has no rule over his own spirit is like a city that is broken down and without walls. Without self-defense, if we can't control ourselves, if we can't control our spirit, we haven't submitted ourselves to God and let his spirit control us. We're like a defenseless city. We're sitting ducks for the devil and his snares. I'm so thankful that here this morning as Christians, we can claim 2 Timothy 1.7, 
which says that God has not given us a spirit of fear, but of power and of love. And the King James says, of a sound mind. And sound mind there means self-control. God has extended that to us as we submit to Him. He's given us His power and love and self-control through His strength. And temperance, as we know, is a fruit of the Spirit, Galatians 5.22, but the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, long-suffering, gentleness, goodness, faith, meekness, temperance, self-control, moderation. Against such there is no law. And they that are Christ, if we are Christ, and they that are Christ have crucified the flesh with the affections and lusts. If we live in the Spirit, let us also walk in the Spirit. Jesus really is our perfect example of this. He was filled with the presence of his Father. He was fully God and fully man. Where would we be today had Christ not stayed on the cross for us? The Bible says he had, he had power to call 10,000 angels to set him free. He could have chosen to not stay on the cross. But yet he did. And the same power that enabled Christ to stay on the cross is available to us today too, to live for him. I'd like to spend a bit of time now in 1 Corinthians 9. Turn with me there. And I'd like to pivot just a little bit from maybe self-discipline and self-control to self-denial. In the 1 Corinthians 9, Paul is writing to the Corinthians. There are people who are questioning his apostleship, and Paul is, is refuting that at the beginning of the chapter. And I would like to read from verse 18 through the end of the chapter and draw several points from this. 1 Corinthians 9, verse 18. What is my reward then? Speaking of him preaching the gospel and being committed to preaching the gospel and spending his life doing that. What is my reward then? Verily, that when I preach the gospel, I may make the gospel of Christ without charge, that I abuse not my power in the gospel. For though I be free from all men, yet have I made myself servant unto all, that I might gain the more. And unto the Jews I became as a Jew, that I might gain the Jews. To them that are under the law, as under the law, that I might gain them that are under the law. To them that are without law, as without law, being not without law to God, but under the law of Christ, that I might gain them that are without law. To the weak became I as weak, that I might gain the weak. I am made all things to all men, that I might by all means save some. And this I do for the gospel's sake, 
that I might be partaker thereof with you. Know ye not that they which run in a race run all, but one receiveth the prize? So run that ye may obtain. And every man that striveth for the mastery is temperate in all things. Now they do it to obtain a corruptible crown, but we an incorruptible. I therefore so run, not as uncertainly, so fight I, not as one that beateth the air, but I keep under my body and bring it into subjection, lest that by any means, when I have preached to others, I myself should be a castaway. So here Paul is, is saying that he's not taken money from the church to support his ministry. He's, he's worked as he's going around to these different churches and visiting and preaching. He's self-sustained. And so some of the, the Corinthians had a problem with that or were saying, well, you're not an apostle because the church isn't supporting you. And then in verse 19, Paul is saying, I'm free from all men. I'm, I'm a Roman citizen. In some ways, that was about as free as an individual could get. You, there was nobody imposing things on him. He was as free as humans get. And when Paul is with the Jews, it's not that Paul, when he's with these various groups, is being wishy-washy or duplicitous. He's not intentionally trying to deceive anybody. Rather, when he's with the Jews, he's saying, okay, the Jews have these customs. The Jews have these things that they do. I want to win the Jews. I don't want to offend the Jews. So I'll be under the Jewish law. I'll observe the Jewish rituals while I'm with Jews. When I'm with the Gentiles... They're not doing any of that. I don't feel the need to do any of that. Yes, I'm governed by Christ and his law. Not breaking that in any way. To the weak, just prior to this, he's talking about not eating meat offered to idols if it's going to offend a brother. That's what he's referring to, I think, when he's talking about those that are weak. He's not going to eat meat when he's with people who would find that offensive. So Paul, in, in this passage, he's giving up whatever personal right he might have to certain things as a means to reach people, to further the gospel. In Acts, we have the record of him with Timothy, and the Jews were like, well, Who's this Timothy guy? He's a Greek. He's a Gentile. He's not been circumcised. We, we don't want to listen to him. And Paul has Timothy circumcised because of the Jews. Basically, Paul is saying, whatever I can do while still being obedient to Christ, whatever I can do to win the loss for the gospel, I'm willing to do those things or give up those rights. And why is Paul willing to do this? Why should we today be self-controlled? Why should we be willing to give up our rights? 
You know, we've seen that display this week. Many people protesting and rioting for one side of an issue or the other because of their perceived rights. Are we as Christians willing to give up our rights for the sake of the gospel? And why is Paul doing this? Why should we do this? Paul recognizes the end goal. He sees the purpose, the point. The end of verse 25. The athletes on this earth, the people who are striving for a prize in some sport, in some arena of life here, in the physical sense, they're not guaranteed a prize but yet they exercise self-control in the hope that that will help them to win that corruptible prize, a, a prize that's going to go away. But for the Christian, being submitted to Christ, self denial gets us an incorruptible crown, a crown of life when we're with God in heaven. And so, today we shouldn't run with uncertainty. We shouldn't look at life and say, well, I don't know if it's going to be worth giving this up because I don't know, I don't know whether I'm going to win the prize at the end of life. No, we have, we have certainty. Paul says, I therefore so run, not as uncertainly. He doesn't, Fight as one who beats the air. He's not one who's rehearsing the race. He's, he's in the race. And he keeps his body under subjection so that he can obtain an incorruptible crown. So this morning, are we surrendered Are we submitted to Christ? Do we recognize that what we will gain by giving up things here is so beautiful and so priceless beyond anything this world can offer? As Paul says in 1 Corinthians, whether we eat or drink or whatever else we do, Do it all to the glory of God. And I trust that's our prayer this morning. That whatever we do in life, it's with the express focus, the express purpose of being yielded to Christ, of seeking that goal and being willing to give up whatever is needed to attain that. Christ gave up everything for us. Are we willing to do the same? Whether that's in our personal lives, in the life of the brotherhood, submitting to each other in the fear of Christ, the grace of God has appeared. Titus says, 
The grace of God that brings salvation has appeared to all men, teaching us that denying ungodly and worldly lusts, we should live soberly or with self-control, righteously and godly in this present world, looking for that blessed hope and the glorious appearing of the great God and our Savior, Jesus Christ, who gave himself for us that he might redeem us from all iniquity and purify unto himself a peculiar people, zealous of good works. Trust that this morning we are looking for that blessed hope, recognizing what Christ has done for us, and giving our all in return. Let's pray.